Hey, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Where's Jude? We had a good thing going. Um, all right, are you guys ready to go home? Boo! I know. We're just getting rolling here. We're just getting rolling here. But I am uh, I'm excited to get one final shot with you this morning. I hope you had some good sleep. I know you probably did not. And... Uh, Make sure you say goodbye to that guy or girl you met at camp, because you'll probably never see him again. So, nothing says goodbye like see you in heaven, Jesse. Okay. Well, take that Bible you have and open up to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, that's where we are. We've anchored our time there this weekend, at least in part, and that's where we're going to finish today. We're going to walk through the rest of this chapter because Paul wants you to know how to live as a Christian. Last night we talked about how the person that doesn't know God, they don't just need spring cleaning. They don't just need to say, yeah, I believe in God. They need to have something happen to them that they aren't really involved in at all. Just like you have no role in your physical birth you have absolutely no role in your spiritual birth in the eyes of God. Yes, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ uses the language of rebirth because he wants you to know this is entirely a work of God. Salvation is not a joint partnership where God does some and I do some. It is entirely a miracle of God. And God says, now that you've been reborn, how can we now, the Bible is going to ask the question, continue to be renewed? We've been positionally renewed. We talked about this last night. But now we want to be progressively renewed. When I say positionally, it means that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, he looks at you as if you had lived the perfect, righteous life of his one and only son. Because Jesus has wrapped you in his robes of glory. If you're in Christ, which is something Paul's going to say a lot, the term in Christ, it means that now not only has Jesus paid for your sin, and that sin was transferred to him on the cross, his righteousness has been transferred over to you. Are we tracking so far? This is very important. Now, here's why that's important. If all you had in the gospel was the removal of your sin, would you ever be able to stand before a holy God? The answer is no, because it says in Hebrews, without holiness... No man shall see the Lord. You don't need to just be blank slates. You need to possess something that you could never, ever earn. You need the perfect righteousness and holiness of God. So what happens in the gospel is that Jesus takes our sin. He bears the weight of that sin on the cross. But in the resurrection, it says in Romans, he then transfers to us his perfect righteousness. So now in the eyes of God, you are positionally righteous. He looks at you and says, that is my son. And that boy who placed his faith in Jesus Christ, I look at him as if he had lived the righteous life of my only son, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That frees us from the idea that we need to make God happy um, by, by doing more for him. We live our life not to earn God's favor, but because we've received God's favor, we live a life of gratitude, knowing what he has done for us. Now, with that being said, here's what we need to understand. 
Those who have been positionally renewed and recognize my standing before God is purely based upon what Jesus Christ has done, they are people who don't want to just say, yeah, I prayed a prayer. Those people, the Bible's going to say, that have truly placed their faith in Christ, they want to be progressively renewed each and every day because although they're like Christ in one sense, they need to become more like Christ in another sense. Does that make sense? Because they're still sinners, right? If you gave your life to, to Jesus, it's not like all of a sudden you're no longer going to struggle with the sin that you struggle with. But over time, until we meet God face to face, his mission in your life and your objective until you meet him face to face is to be like your Savior. Now, Paul's going to say that happens through ongoing renewal. And I want to read this whole passage for you in verses 21 through 32. And I want to talk about really three things, really one thing, and then how that one thing plays itself out in two main areas. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former self of life, that's former self, meaning that's the old guy. Remember, you've been, a, you're a new creation. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your, what's it say? Mind. And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Would you pray with me? God, we just ask as we look to your word that you would be kind to us in enabling us to understand the precious truths contained herein. God, we're so thankful for the lives that were changed last night. We're thankful for your profound mercy, your immense grace, and your unfathomable love to sinners like me and like us. God, would you continue to change us? Lord, we know that you've saved us not because of what we've done, but because you, of who you are, that you are a God of love and who delights in exercising mercy. And so, Lord, we pray that out of the gratitude that comes from understanding that, that we would desire to be more and more like our Savior until we meet you face to face through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. Amen. Now, Paul is going to get at something here that's important. Now, let's say you, you've known Christ for a, a long time and obedience to Christ feels like a lot of rules and regulations. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't look at pornography or I know I shouldn't talk about these people like that or I know I shouldn't watch these things or go to these places or do these things, but that just feels like a bunch of rules. Now, here's the reality. In the Bible, there are explicit commandments like, do not do this, do not steal, do not lie, things like that. But the question is, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
Now, the question I want you to think through with me is how can the Bible be full of rules and commandments on the one hand? Because there are commandments. It's not like, no, those are just suggestions for you to consider. No, it's commandments. How can it be like, hey, here's what you need to do. But on the other side of things, it's say that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is great, say it with me, freedom. So the question is, how can what I ought to do become what I want to do? How can the commandments that I've been given by God become the things that I crave obeying? How can when God says, be pure, don't look upon anything lustfully, how can that no longer feel like a chore, but a delight to my heart? Question for you, do you long to be delivered from duty-driven Christianity? Do you long to be transformed from the inside out? Do you long to have what you ought to do be what you want to do. Well, then you need to pursue with all of your might the renewing of your mind. And this is what Paul says. Look with me once again. In verse 22, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul's going to say the same thing in other places. In Romans 12, you're likely familiar with the passage if you've grown up in the church. It says, do not be conformed to this, what, world, yeah, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's going to say, don't be like the world, but it's not just that you don't be like the world. It's not just resist sin. It's that you need to be transformed so what you love and delight in is holiness, Paul says, do not let the world squeeze you and mold you. Don't let it make its stamp on you. It doesn't matter if you bathe every day if you go and spend the rest of the day rolling around in mud. The average person in here spends at least 16 hours a day under the direct influence of a worldly system that hates God. And it's not enough for you to leave camp and go, I want to follow Jesus now, and then to give him the leftovers of your time and the leftovers of your allegiance. If you want to become like God, you need to understand something. You are going into a dark world that is opposed to God and its values, opposed to God and its worldview. And if you want to be like the God that saved you, you must pursue with all of your mind the renewing of it. But this world doesn't want us to be transformed. This world wants to be partners with us. The world, it says, is trying to conform us. It's trying to press and make its mold. I remember playing with Play-Doh when I was a kid, and we used to have like these different things, and we could make different shapes. And that's the same idea here. It says that the world is basically trying to squeeze you into its mold. And Paul says, no, don't just resist it. Become a transformed individual. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you go from the to-do list of the world to the to-do list of the Christian faith. Does that make sense? It's not like you've just exchanged a pattern of behaviors. It's that you've exchanged and are being transformed in your affections. The only way you will ever actually hate sin is if you grow in your love of righteousness. Does that make sense? Now, if you struggle with impurity, the Bible's going to give you a list of things, and we'll talk about this more in a minute. It's going to say, get accountability. Make no provision for the flesh in Romans 13, 14. 
Meaning if you have an iPhone and you use your iPhone to look at pornography, the Bible says, Jesus says, hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, for it's better for you to go into heaven with one eye than for your entire body to go into hell. Eliminate, that's Jesus, right? But it's not just cut this off, get accountability. Jesus says you also need to learn to hate that sin because of how it grieves God. And because you've deepened your intimacy with God, that sin no longer becomes appetizing to you because you have found satisfaction in a superior delight. Do you want that? That only comes to one type of individual. And it's those who pursue the renewing of their mind. What's wrong with the human mind? Well, the mind is still sinful. And we think maybe they just need education or maybe they need information. But the problem with your mind is not a problem of information. It's a problem of sin. That the natural mind still, as long as you are in the flesh, meaning as long as you are in the, on this earth, you're still going to have a natural bent towards the world. It's not like holiness just becomes automatic at this point. You're still, you still are going to desire certain things. It's going to say in James that these, these temptations wage war against you. Much could be said about the anti-intellectualism. That just means like the depth of our thinking in Christian circles today. We live in one of the most profoundly mentally immature times in Christian history because the church at large, generally speaking, not as a blanket statement, wants to make the Christian faith as easy as possible to live. And so it reduces, it eliminates the necessity of using your minds to really pursue the Lord, to know his character, to know his word. But if you look at the scripture, there is a constant theme throughout all of it. And it's that the Christian life begins in the mind. It begins with what you think about, what you behold. John Stott, the famous English theologian, says the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. The Christian life is not a check your brain at the door faith. In fact, faith is primarily thinking. I want to have faith in God. You know what faith in God is? It means to think about who he is and to place your trust in him because rationally he has always delivered on every single promise. He has been faithful for all generations. He's been faithful in your life. That process involves thinking. Do you want to love God? Well, to love God more, you need to consider something else, his love for you because we love because he first what? All of your Christian life is predicated, which means built upon you developing deep thoughts about God that over time change your mind, rewires your mind. As your mind goes, so goes the entirety of your spiritual life. Your will, meaning your, what you end up doing, is the servant of your affections. And your affections are the servant of your mind. Proverbs 23, seven says, for as a man thinks within himself, so he is. The Bible says you are the sum and substance of your thoughts. Filthy thoughts produce a filthy life. Godly thoughts produce a godly life. 
So the Bible's gonna say, be careful what you let behind the steering wheel of your mind. Can I just show you a few passages you can write this down because I want you to understand something. This theme is everywhere. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for actions. You are not ready for anything in the Christian life until you prepare your mind. Ephesians, we just read that, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your mind? It means to submit to him everything you think about. You live in a world that's addicted to entertainment and in many ways is so contradictory to a desire that goes, God, I want you to change the way I think from the inside out. Now, is watching a movie wrong? No, I love movies. I like Remember the Titans, favorite movie. But the mind needs to be transformed. Now, you wanna know how Satan works? I talked about this on opening night. He's a real being. You wanna know how Satan's gonna work in your life? You wanna know he works in the unbeliever's life and what he's okay with even in the believer's life? It says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In whose case the God of this world, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. You want to know how Satan wants to operate? He doesn't care if you believe in God. It says that he works in such a fashion. He wants to blind your minds from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He wants to prevent you from looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus is wonderful to me. He wants to prevent you from actually meaning the words that you're singing. As long as you believe in God, that's fine. He doesn't care if you're an atheist or a Christian. As long as you don't think Jesus Christ is glorious and wonderful. His strategy changes when someone becomes a believer, but it's still basically the same thing because all sin in your life as a Christian is rooted upon thinking that the world is going to offer you more satisfaction than Jesus Christ can. And so he wants you to think, Jesus can never fill the void in my heart. The only thing that can do that is a relationship or this person or this being or this, this picture or video on a screen or gossiping. I need to elevate what people think of me by diminishing what I say about other people. I need to put them low so that I can make myself feel high. Satan wants you to think God is average. So how is our mind renewed? Can you just look at one passage with me? Sometimes I want you to look at passages that maybe you would read and not initially understand that are worthy of our attention. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, a real church at a real time in history. In 2 Corinthians, we're gonna look, actually, let's look at verse 17 because here's the answer to the question. Remember what I asked? How can doing what we ought to do become what we want to do? 2 Corinthians 3.17 says this. Now, this, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or freedom, it might say in your translation. Now, the question is, how can, how can walking with God feel like liberty? But we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There's that word, Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Can I be real simple with you? 
the only way that you are transformed into the image of Christ is by a steady, disciplined gaze at Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that you become like what or who you behold. Do you want to be like Jesus? Well, then you need a consistent gaze at the person of Jesus. I want you to understand something. Everyone look at me for a second. Anybody that cares. Jesus is a real person to be known. He's not a subject to be understood. He's a person to be known. And until you know Jesus and develop an intimacy with this person through the word of God, through the spirit of God, working through his word, the spirit of God is a real person that now sanctifies us, which means changes us into the image of Christ. Through God's word, through God's spirit, in prayer, amongst God's people, God wants to change you. What's interesting about this word in Ephesians 4, that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, is in Greek, there's different ways of looking at a verb, but this verb is a passive verb, which means that it's something that's being done to us. It's not just that we go, I gotta change my mind. It's that we come to the Lord and we say, oh Lord, my mind needs to be renewed. I need to be changed. And so Lord, as I look to you in your word and as I seek you in prayer and as I devote my life to God's people, would you through your Holy Spirit change and transform my affections. God, I, keep me from sin. Keep me from it. I hate it, God, but I want to hate it more. So change my thinking and give me a love for righteousness because, God, what I want more than anything is to know you as a friend. And that's how the Christian is changed. Have older godly men and women in your life, it says in Titus 2. But to be renewed isn't, I just need to change. It's a pleading with God as you submit to the word of God, asking him that the spirit of God can conform you into the image of the son of God. You need something to happen to you. But this time, unlike salvation, understand this, salvation was all a work of God, right? But this is a little bit different because it says that we are both, this, this growth into the image of Christ is also entirely a work of God, but yet we're also supposed to put our hand to the plow in this endeavor and operate with some holy sweat. Because it says in Philippians 2, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to seek God. There is no cruising to holiness. It's not a cruise liner. It's difficult. It takes work and discipline. You might need to stop watching TV at night so you can get up in the morning and say, God, every single day is a battle. My thoughts are prone to wonder. My tongue is so evil, God. So please help me to submit all of my life under the lordship of Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17, that he speaks on behalf of the Lord, meaning that when God is Lord of your life, every single area of your life, including your time, is under the submission that it belongs to him. And it's not just something that happens to you, even though it is, you're, you're, you're being changed, but you pursue that change. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to discipline ourselves, Paul will say, for the purpose of godliness. It's a both and here, but it's all a work of grace because even the things that we pursue can only actually come to fruition through the spirit of God Question for you: If maybe I, I just maybe you've been struggling with a certain sin, and you feel like there's no victory, 
or no obedience. The Bible's gonna be real, just ask you a basic question. Well, do you spend more time scrolling social media than you do seeking your Savior and his word? Well, then of course, well, then of course you continue to sin. When you go to the gateway drug of whatever it might cause you to sin all day long, do you spend more time watching the television than you do seeking your Savior? Well, then, of course, it's not wrong to do other things. But to be renewed, you need to change your priorities. Your life's going to need to look different. To be conformed to this world, do you know what you have to do? Nothing. All you need to do is immerse yourself in it, to allow yourself to be influenced by it. It takes no effort and brings no reward. But do you know what you need to do to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? You need to immerse yourself in the word of God amongst the people of God. And that doesn't just mean your buddies. It means I find and latch myself onto people who are older and godlier than me. I'm honest about the sin in my life. It takes much work and brings about great reward. The renewing of your mind is gonna reveal itself in two main categories. I, I wanna look at these first. Biblically speaking, when the mind is renewed and when the person becomes a Christian, it's going to reveal itself in two main categories, the first of which is sexual purity. Sexual purity. In Ephesians, it's going to talk about this a lot. Now, remember what the unregenerate person, that just means the unsafe person, is like in verse 19 of chapter 4. They have become callous. Okay, what happens to people who are hardened in their hearts? Well, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. Now, I want you to look at this with me. Turn over to the next chapter in Ephesians 5 because Paul's gonna continue the same thing and this is what's gonna happen in the New Testament. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament, eight lists that describe, okay, now that you're saved, now that you're saved, make sure you're transformed in this area. At the top of every single one of those vice lists, except for one, Paul is going to talk about what you do with your sexual purity because it is the number one distinguisher between someone that is saved and not saved. It's how they view their bodies and their minds and their eyes before a holy God. Ephesians 5, therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Man, think about that. He loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Meaning, how much can I dabble in sexual sin? How far can I go in this relationship? What's really the break-even point where this becomes actually sin? When does it become pornography? Or is it just like Instagram stuff is fine and then if I cross that threshold, that becomes sin? Immorality or impurity must not even be named among you. Not even a hint of that. Your life belongs to the God who died for you, who loved you. And there must be, verse 4, no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What Paul is saying is that the people that continue to live in this sexually immoral lifestyle, it reveals something about their hearts. It's that they've never been changed. It's not that God can't save sexual sinners. He has. 
and he does all the time, but it's that the people that continue to live in the same way before they claim to come to know the Lord, it's revelatory of the reality that there's not been real change there because all those God has saved are those whom he will change. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he's gonna explain what that means. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the first rung of the ladder. You guys know a ladder? You can't get to the top without what's at the bottom. You climb. And one of the first rungs of the ladder in the Christian life is how you operate with your body, mind, and eyes before a holy God in regards to your sexual purity. Can I just tell you where I'm going in a second? Because I want you to understand something. Not only, not only does God hate this sin, and not only does it reveal something so, so tragic about our intimacy with God, but sexual sin is unlike other sin. All sin separates us from God, but 1 Corinthians 6 says that sexual sin is unlike every other sin because every other sin is committed outside the body. But the impure person, the immoral person, sins against his body. Here's why it's so different, is that if you're a Christian, do you know where God now resides? He now resides in the temple of his saints, that every single Christian becomes a temple where God lives And when you go and operate in sexual impurity, you are dragging Jesus Christ, the one who was nailed to a cross for your sin, into the sin with you. The Bible's gonna ask a question in 1 Corinthians 6. Can you imagine Jesus looking at a screen of impure images? Can you imagine him in that bed with someone that is not your spouse? And then it's saying, well, then neither can you drag the Lord Jesus Christ into sexual sin with you because you are in Christ. It's not just that God is in you. He's been united with you. That's the union with Christ. It means that when Paul says, I am now in Christ, It means that God is now, he's a part of us. He lives inside of us. And that's why sexual sin is so important, so deadly. It'll cost you, it says in Matthew, your soul. And not only does it, does God hate it? Can you look at Ephesians 4 with me once again? Because I want to show you something. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Kids that love their dads are grieved when they grieve their dads. Make sense? To wound your dad hurts you. And do you know what the Bible says about your sin? It's not just that God hates it and opposes it. It says that when you operate in sin, like sexual impurity, it grieves the Holy Spirit, the one that sealed you for redemption. That word for seal was used in Roman times for when someone was adopted. It was a big wax that says, this person belongs to me. So that no one would ever be confused. This boy, this boy with no parents, he is going to be in my family now. And so that you know that I mean it, here's my family crest. I'm going to dip it in wax and I'm going to stamp it on these adoption papers so everyone knows this boy belongs to me. 
And it says the Holy Spirit sealed you for redemption, which means that when Satan comes to God about the Christian sin, now, between you and the Lord, you're the only ones that are going to know whether or not you're saved or not. But when, the Christ, when Satan comes to God and says, look at this guy, look at his sin, right? When we sing that song, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, aboard I look and see him there who made an end of all of my sin. But the way that Satan works right now is he's accusing Christians before God. Look at Jimmy. Look how sinful he is. Look what he continues to do. Look how she gossips. Look how angry she is. Look how impatient she is, God. You know what God says? Here's the adoption papers. That is my son. That is my daughter. And when you operate in sin, you grieve the God that bought you, not with gold, not with silver, but with the precious blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Every time you're tempted to look at something or to do something or to say something that is wrong, and sinful, it grieves the heart of God. And no kid that loves their father wants to wound him. So first, this renewing of our mind takes place, or manifests itself at least in, the, in, our, in regards to our sexual purity. But secondly here, it manifests itself in how we use our tongues. In Ephesians 4, how do we reflect an inner transformation? How do you reflect that your life has been changed by God? Well, listen to what he says. It says in verse 25, therefore laying aside, I'm in Ephesians 4, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Then he's gonna say in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. One of the primary ways, maybe, maybe even as we've been talking about sexual purity, you go, mm, I'm good. The Bible's gonna say, yeah, it, that's important. That's one of the most important things. But do you know what else is really important? what you text, what you type, and what you say is one of the most revelatory realities about your heart. James 1.26, James is writing five chapters about what it looks like to be a real Christian. And in every single one of those five chapters, he's going to talk about the way that we talk and the way that we text, and the way that we type, meaning all of our speech. And he says this in James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious, meaning if anyone, and that word for religious in James 1.26 is used only one time in the entire Bible, and it's used here. And it literally means if anyone thinks he is a devout worshiper of God, meaning these are the type of people, the, the religious person here is a Bible-studying, Bible-college, worshiping Jesus. Hey, everyone, come gather. I play the guitar. Let's play some songs. That type of religious. I pursue God. I love God. That type of thing. If anyone thinks that he is a devout worshiper of God, contrasting statement coming up, and does not bridle his tongue, this person deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. Have you ever been deceived by someone you trusted? Have you ever been betrayed? 
Betrayal is always tragic, is it not? There's one form of betrayal and deception in the Bible that is more tragic than any other type of betrayal. Do you know what it is? Self-betrayal and self-deception. When someone thinks they are something that they are not. And James says the greatest tragedy is when someone thinks that they are religious and worshipful and all these things, and yet they use this little muscle in their tongue to slander and to rip apart those whom God has made in his image. The tongue is powerful. In James 3, it says that it's powerful. Obviously, many, most of you live in California, I'm assuming, and we have, we're one of the only states with five seasons, fire season being the fifth. And it will come. But what's amazing about fires is that I've, even when there was that big fire here a number of years ago, these fires devastate communities. They uproot families. They bring about much grief, pain, and loss. But the most interesting thing about a forest fire is its beginning. It doesn't start as a massive destructive force, but as a tiny spark. The expression like wildfire was coined to represent the idea that James will get at in James chapter three. What else starts so small and moves faster and becomes more powerful than you could have ever expected? There is nothing like fire. It can bring great warmth when tamed, but when untamed, it brings death and devastation, ruin. And for this reason, the scripture says, the tongue is a fire. Proverbs 16, 27 says, an ungodly man digs up evil, and his lips there is burning fire. The tongue is a disproportionately small muscle in our body, but it yields much force. And God cares about the way you talk. Do you want to represent the God who made you in his image and who has bought you with his blood? Watch the way you speak about other people. It says in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, meaning that no speech that does not bring God glory should come out of the mouth of Christians. Watch this, turn back over to Ephesians 5. There must be, verse four, no filthiness and no silly talk or coarse jesting. Do you know that God cares so much about even innuendo when you make a little joke, <laughs> that's a sexual joke type of thing? That grieves the heart of God. He hates that. He hates that. It wounds him. The things that you have become so used to in this culture where basically every show is built upon the foundation of let's joke crudely and sexually. Well, maybe we won't even show anything, but we'll hint at it and, and imply it. How many unwholesome words can the Christian let come out of their mouth? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. God cares immensely about the way you talk. The tongue also lies. It's a fire, but it's a lying tongue. Proverbs 12, 22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But watch how much God wants to change you. This is good news for you, and it's good news for me. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4, I'm just looking back. It says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak 
each one of you the truth with his neighbor. Meaning that God's will for your life is not just that you go from the absence of bad behaviors to a position of neutrality. God wants all liars to not just stop lying, but to begin actively sharing and spreading and proclaiming the truth. God wants you to go from sexual impurity to God-honoring purity. He's not in the business of just eliminating your sin. He's in the business of transforming you into ongoing, growing righteousness. Let every liar, every liar, look at me. That's all of us. We all lie, right? He doesn't just say, snap out of it. He says, no, 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 don't lie. Bring God glory by preaching and proclaiming the truth to every one of your neighbors, your deskmates, your classmates, on your athletic teams. Be a truth proclaimer. The tongue matters to God. I'll let you guess this final one. Let me read this to you regarding the tongue. I found this from an article. Who am I? The article says, I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and I I ruin lives. I am cruel and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims, they are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no name and I have no face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I tarnish a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments and I ruin marriages. I destroy careers and cause heartache and sleepless nights. I wreck churches and separate Christians. I spawn suspicion and generate grief, making innocent people cry on their pillows. Even my name hisses. What is my name? My name is Gossip. Gossip is a particularly deadly sin that has destroyed more people, damaged more relationships, deteriorated more friendships, and divided more churches than any other sin. The sins of the tongue might be minor to you, but they are major in the eyes of God. God hates gossip because your tongue was not given to you to defame and slander and rip other people, even in potentially a godly way. I mean, hey, you can pray for Judy. (laughs) She's a real mess. No, right? We can do this in like ways where we covered up. Yeah, pray for Rick. He just can't get his act together, right? That's also gossip. We're disguising our gossip as godly concern. And God says, don't do that. Your tongue was given to you for one reason, and it is to proclaim Jesus Christ in verse 20. 29, but only such a word as is good for edification. What is edification? Well, it's, it means literally to build one another up. Make a commitment to yourself. I will only speak words that bring God glory and strengthen the souls of those around me. It says to give grace to those who hear, which means that you might even have things that you want to say and should say, but that aren't grace-giving at a specific moment, meaning the Christian is conscientious of the timing of what he says and when he says it, because your desire is to strengthen those around you in their knowledge of God and in their love for the Lord. Maybe after you've been changed by God, you're asking the question, how can I be used by God? Well, good news is the way to have a big impact on the world around you doesn't start by doing something big. 
It starts by controlling something very small. That being your tongue. And all of this is done as we renew our minds in God's word. Meaning that when you want to be more pure, it's not just that you go after purity or you go after, I want to change the way I speak in of itself. It all starts with going, I want to become more like Christ. And when I go to the root, the fruit of that becomes more purity and more taming of my tongue. I got just a final moment with you guys. And I'm almost done. Can I just tell you a couple things just by way of uh, maybe from an older brother that cares for you? You are becoming the man or woman you will become in five years right now. Nothing is going to change unless you do something to change. Meaning like I'm submitting my life to let God be Lord over me. And what you do with God's word is the single most important thing in your life. What you do with this book is the direct influencer of who you will be in five years. Do you want to love the Lord? Well, then you need to know the character of God. Do you want God to be a real person to you? Did you grow up Christian and just feel like this is a subject to be understood? Yeah, yeah, God is good. Check that box. No. Do you want to know his goodness? The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good because it's experientially real. I think I missed this growing up, that God's person becomes so real to me. The psalmist says, taste and see it. Know it for yourself. Do you want to taste and see God's goodness? Well, then devote your life to God's word. Do you want to be sexually pure? Well, the psalmist is going to say, how can a young man keep his way pure? by keeping it according to what? Your word. Do you wanna watch how you use your tongue? Well then look at the words of Jesus where it says in Luke 4, 22, and then again in Luke 4, 32, that they were amazed at the gracious words that were falling from the lips of Jesus and be reminded of his character. Do you wanna be used by God? Well then in a world of lies, commit your life to the truth. Do you wanna be useful in your local church? Well, then be an ambassador that's committed their life to the truth. When you move on from high school, don't pick a college unless you know there's a good local church. It doesn't matter if it's a great school, and I don't care if there's an extra zero at the end of your salary. If you don't know where you're going to go to church, there's nothing more important than your soul. And no Christian is an island. They were meant to live amongst the family of God. So no extra zero can possibly, possibly be better for you than a healthy, Bible-preaching, godly church with godly men and women. You might have big plans for your life, but I hope it all starts here every morning. That's legalism. No, no, no. I want to know the Savior that died for me. And the Bible tells me to discipline myself so that I might know him. And if you've been changed by God, that's not legalism. That's your greatest joy Can I pray for you? God, we're so thankful. There's just so much in your word, Lord, so I just pray that they would devote their life to it, Lord, because, not just because there's anything special about words on a page, 
but because the Holy Spirit uses your holy word to change our hearts. That's why the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes, O God, that I may behold the wonderful things within your word. God, you want our minds to be renewed, and so we submit our time and our minds under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and his inerrant word. God, you want us to be sexually pure, so I pray that we would gaze upon the purity of the person of Jesus Christ. God, we want our minds to then result in tongues that have been tamed for your glory, where we watch what we say and watch what we text and watch what we type. We don't say, ha-ha, things that you died for. And so, Lord, would you please help us to consider how Jesus used his tongue it says that he was gracious, and Lord, it says that also because he was silent upon the cross like a sheep before his shears, he did not open his mouth because a silent Jesus Christ on the cross paid for all of the sins of our tongue. And so, Lord, drive them to Jesus Christ because they cannot know you but, and they cannot know your love apart from your precious word. And that's why the psalmist prays in 119, oh God, let your loving kindness come to me according to your word. We talk much about the love of God, but we will never know it unless we devote our life to this precious book and amongst your most precious people. God, give them a heart for Jesus Christ. Would you be with these counselors and youth pastors? Encourage them in the work of the ministry. Encourage them, the layman and the laywoman, as they serve. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. I love you guys.